You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here's your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. Good morning. I'm Julie Broadway, president at the American Horse Council. And I'm Megan Arsman, marketing and communications for the American Horse Council. And you're listening to the special monthly American Horse Council episode of Horses in the Morning on Horse Radio Network for October 3rd, 2023, episode six. Good morning, horse world. It's time to hear from the American Horse Council in this monthly episode of Horses in the Morning. So today's episode is titled, Can We Solve the Veterinary Shortage Problem? Megan, kick us off. Thanks, Julie. According to a 2019 American Association of Equine Practitioners Equine Economic Survey report, most equine veterinarians knew they wanted to be a vet before the age of 10. That's similar to my story and how I chose my path, but it certainly was not to be a veterinarian. But so many choose this career path because of a calling they felt and a passion and a love for the horse. I have a few friends myself that are equine veterinarians in various states of the of the country. And while I'm going to laugh, able to laugh with them over some of those you'd never believe it case studies, I didn't. It didn't hit me how hard the profession really is until recently, when one chose to leave the practice to join the state board of animal health so she could spend more time with her children. And another one kept me awake at night, talking in ways that worried me that she'd be part of the statistic of compassion fatigue and what could happen. Side note, she ended up being okay. She just needed someone to talk to, like most of us do. But it is important to note the Not One More Vet campaign to support veterinarians who think about suicide. Thanks, Megan. This certainly isn't a new topic to our audience at the American Horse Council, as we hosted a webinar in November of 2022, which we titled, Where Have All the Veterinarians Gone? And it featured David Foley of the American Association of Equine Practitioners and a couple of folks from Lincoln Memorial and Texas Tech who were starting new um, veterinary programs. Not quite a year later now, we're revisiting this topic to learn more about the root causes what's being done to address the challenge, and how the horse community can support and help this. Um, Over the last, you know, 11 or 12 months, I've noted several articles, blogs on this subject, including Vet Practice News, The Horse, and some other major networks even like CNN and NPR who are talking about it. Mm -hmm. Quality vet care is essential to the agricultural economy and public health. So we really need to solve the shortage as quickly as possible. Turn your love of horses into savings with equine discounts through the NTRA. Purchase through equine discounts and receive great savings on well-known brands like John Deere, Sherwin-Williams, Big Ass Fans, Farmers Insurance, and Office Depot. Join thousands of other equine members and support companies that give back to the industry we all love. Call 866-678-4289 or visit equinediscounts.com to start saving today. Which brings us to our guest today. We'll be talking with representatives from the American Association of Equine Practitioners and the United States Department of Agriculture to see what these two groups are doing to help with the shortage. Our first guest is going to be David Foley with AAP. 
David is the executive director of the AAP. He began working there in 1988. Is that correct, David? It is. Initially serving in a variety of positions within the association. David is active within the equine veterinary and association committees and has communities and has served on numerous committees for a variety of organizations, such as the American Horse Council, Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance, and Path International. David is a native of Louisville, Kentucky, but he now lives in Lexington. David, thank you so much for joining us for this very important discussion. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. David, I'm going to kick it off by asking, can you pinpoint the top couple of reasons, maybe three, why there is a veterinary shortage and how um, are we combating those? Well, from an equine standpoint, it's really it really kind of boils down to two things that are broad and, and it's salary and lifestyle. And so, um, you know, equine veterinarians make less money than their small animal counterparts and they're working uh, a lot more hours. They're, the on-call coverage uh, is just kind of a killer, and it's uh, it's been a real problem for the profession. When did we first uncover this pending shortage or really start to feel it, David? Well, we've seen it coming for a year or two, honestly, and it was more of an internal thing, but then it, we began to hear from our members that couldn't find associates, they couldn't find interns to fill positions, mm. uh, and then we started hearing about it more in the in the broader equine community and the racing industry, horse show industry, just the difficulties in finding a veterinarian, and so we really feel like it's kind of become, it kind of reached a crisis point, honestly. Is there a similar shortage for small animal veterinarians or is it are we focusing mostly on for the large animals? Well, I think that there are, I, I don't have the data for small animal medicine, but I think that there is a little bit of a of a shortage there as well. Um, just the demand for for services is so great. And with the with the influx of the new veterinary schools that are have just opened and are, are opening, that should help solve that problem. And so it seems to be more uh, more of a large animal. I, I know that the bovine practitioner community is is um, struggling as well as equine. And that talk of the influx of new of some new vet schools, um, as a proud alumnus, I have to say that I read that Murray State University in Murray, Kentucky, was looking to start a school of veterinary medicine as a way to assist in the shortage. And surprisingly, this would be the first school of veterinary medicine in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. A lot of people, uh, Julie and I were just talking earlier. A lot of people think with the Gluck Center and and everything in uh, UK that you that UK has a vet school, but they don't. Um, and of course, the Murray State School would have to would open some years in the future. But do you feel that part of the reason for the shortage is the lack of? lack of schools or the inaccessibility for some people that want to attend veterinary school, but they feel that the caseload is way too much? Well, the, the demand for the number of seats has always exceeded the number of, of spaces that there are in veterinary school. And so the applicant pool is huge um, and the schools can only handle so much capacity, of course. And I know many schools have tried to increase their capacities. And then with the new schools, that are being developed that should go a long way. We really haven't, from an equine standpoint, we really haven't seen the pipeline of students entering veterinary school wanting to be equine practitioners all that much different than it's been, honestly. Really okay. what the problem has been, the retention mm -hmm. of those 
veterinarians uh, in equine practice because we have found that, you know, some of them will leave during the course of veterinary school, will decide to not pursue equine. But then we've seen that that about 50 percent of our recent graduates have left within the first five years and mm-hmm. gone to small animal medicine. Wow. So it's retention really is the main problem for us right now. So, David, I know that AAEP is really working on this issue, and you've formed a task force um, to sort of delve into it, think about possible solutions you guys could implement. First, tell us a little bit about who composes the task force. Is this seasoned um, veterinarians and young veterinarians in a, a, in a mix of genders and different backgrounds? Tell us who's helping formulate this strategy for you guys. And then what, what exactly are they, what have they come up with? Sure. Well, this is probably the biggest initiative that the AAP has undertaken since I began working for them. And so it's huge. And it's the number one piece of our strategic plan trying to address this issue. And so we formed a task force on retention about 18 months ago to conduct some research because we've always known that salary and lifestyle were kind of the concerns from exit surveys we did from members who didn't renew. Uh, but we know we needed to kind of get deeper there and see what specifically those issues were. And so we formed a retention task force, spent 12 months doing a lot of research, a lot of interviews with students, with recent graduates, with practice owners, trying to determine kind of the pain points uh, that each segment experienced. And what we did was then formed a commission on equine veterinary sustainability. And within that commission, there are five subcommittees that really are compri- comprised the pain points. And one is on um, the culture of equine practice. One is on the internship year. The other is on compensation. Uh, the fourth was, is on emergency coverage. And then there's a fifth one that, you know, that for student outreach. And so each of these subcommittees is comprised of a variety of members and genders and ages and experience levels. Uh, and each group has been working now for probably the better part of a year in the, and they're all developing, you know, some great resources for our members and our member practices to, to help reverse the tide. Is one of those groups, David, focusing on health and, and well-being? Because we've heard anecdotally that when you get into these stress points, regardless of what your job is, mm-hmm. sometimes you turn to to substance abuse or you, or you have real mental challenges. Well, that's true. And it, and, and a lot of these, a lot of the work of these subcommittees sort of layers over, you know, is interconnected. And we we have had a standing wellness committee for a long time that's not really part of this commission. But within the commission, the practice culture subcommittee is working with our wellness committee and they're and they're addressing some of those some of those issues. Mm-hmm. David, how can horse owners assist in the shortage? I know, you know, you a lot of the articles you kind of talk about how horse owners, a lot of them, you know, they lose their patients quite easily. Um, but you know, we 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 do want to help and we want to try to be the best that we can be for, for our horses and for our veterinarians. So what are some tips that we can share with horse owners that can help them combat their horse's health while they also support their, their veterinarian and try to be the best client that they can be? Sure. There's a, there's a few things that come to mind. Uh, For one thing, you know, observe business hours. 
<laughs> you know, only contact your veterinarian after business hours for a true emergency. Emergency coverage and just the burnout factor is so big in equine practice. It may be the single biggest, maybe even more than compensation, the feeling that you're always on. You never can take time off. And that just gets to people and that affects wellness and, you know, the whole thing. And so, you know, really, really call your veterinarian for for true emergencies after hours, not just things that are more convenient, you know, just because it's more convenient for you. The other thing is uh, respect your veterinarian's small business, you know, pay your bills on time. Um, payment for services rendered is critical for these for these small practices and these small businesses. Um, be ready for the veterinarian when they show up. Have your horse in from the field, clean before your veterinarian arrives uh, to keep everyone safe. Make sure your horse is trained to have good ground manners. Uh, as are a few things. Uh, the other thing is, um, oftentimes, um, be accepting of the veterinarian that comes out there, whether it's your regular veterinarian right. or not, uh -huh. a younger vet. Or it may be the vet that's on call. It may not be the one that you're used to seeing, but but be okay with that and be receptive to that. Um, those are just a few things. So I've got a couple of things floating in my head. Do you think telemedicine is going to really begin to help with part of this, David? I know it's becoming more of a conversation in this space. Sure. Um, I think so. And I, you know, our, our emergency coverage subcommittee is, is taking a look at a lot of different models for how practice, there's not a one size fits all, mm, yeah. a lot of practices can handle emergency coverage. There's co-ops, there's haul in, some clinics can, just can't offer it anymore. Um, but, but uh, telemedicine is a, is a component of that. And there, you know, there's some, there's some teletriage services mm -hmm. that are out there that some uh, practices are using where their clients can call in and they can say, uh, yeah, this is really an emergency. We need to see you or this will be fine until tomorrow, uh, you know, type of stuff. And so the, the one piece about telemedicine I, I want to emphasize is that, you know, th it's fine under the auspices of a veterinary client patient relationship. And for a VCPR to be established, we believe that that the horse has to have been examined in person, at least at some point, there needs to be a relationship there. We don't feel that a VCPR can be established solely by electronic means. David, so, just for our listeners who don't know that acronym, what does VCPR stand for? It's the veterinary client patient relationship. Got you. Is that a, is that like a, a an official document? Well, it's a it's a, <laughs> a terminology that they use in veterinary medicine. It's a, it's you know to establish that it, it's you know doctor patient relationship mm -hmm. like you have with your human uh, physician, um, and so you treating a horse without having ever seen it before at any point in time, we don't feel like that is a a, a good way to establish a VCPR. Yeah. You know, if they've been out to the farm, they've seen the horse initially, then it's it's one thing to then offer treatments and and advice. Uh, via telehealth. That makes perfect sense to me. Mm -hmm. um, David, um, you know, I speak to a lot of university equine programs, um, advising those students on careers in the space. And I often talk to them about, um, you know, how important veterinarians are to us, but not everybody's cut out to be a veterinarian. Find, you know, find the right niche for you. And I know a lot of these new programs that are popping up, like Texas Tech and Lincoln Memorial and now Murray State, are really putting more emphasis 
as we think about encouraging the next generation, putting more emphasis on their passion for this uh, this uh, career uh, rather than on the GPA or, or on these other things. Because I think what I heard is that tends to make them stickier, that they tend to stay in the profession if they're really passionate about it, more so than concentrating on, I've got to have that perfect GPA kind of thing. Talk about that just a minute. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the the... Most of the kids that go into equine practice are, you know, from a farmer or ranch background. And so they're familiar with the lifestyle. They have a passion for horses. And so that goes a long way because being an equine veterinarian is a lifestyle. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's um, you you have to be smart. You you know, you have to have good grades. Um, And so it's because it's, you know, it's science. It's a it's a doctorate degree, obviously. Um, And so. but trying to attract kids from a farmer or ranch background. And that's one of the things about the LMU program that's pretty new. They're really focusing on equine specific kids. Uh, and that's an interesting program where you would do two and a half years of undergrad. You're accepted into veterinary school right out of high school. And so you go and do two and a half years of undergrad. And if you keep your grades up, then you go right into veterinary school. And it's a four-year accredited veterinary program. But what they're trying to do with this pilot program, they've got 25 or 30 slots a year, but they're really emphasizing um kids with a horse background. In fact, that's part of the interview process is to talk about your and show, demonstrate via a video your horse experience. So they're hoping to really, you know, produce um, a number of of equine veterinarians from that program. And that's a brand new program. And I think others, there'll be others like it. Oh, that's great. Mm-hmm. Talk, talk some more about what we can do to encourage the next generation of equine veterinarians. Um, and I'm going to give a shameless plug. Is that asking our horse community to give generously to the foundation of the horse so we can put up scholarships or mentorship money or whatever? What does that look like, David? Well, there's a lot of opportunity there because there is a shortage. And, and I think this next generation of equine practitioners are really in the kind of the driver's seat. You know, one of the phrases that we've we've used over the last year is that we need to change the work to fit the workforce rather than the workforce to fit the work. And so we're trying to, uh, uh, you know, change the culture of equine practice and and so that they can have a balanced life and a, and a night and make a nice living at the same time. And I think we're, we're seeing some of the things that we've been doing bear fruit, uh, you know, in just different pockets around the country, we're hearing about some, some positive change. And so I'm very optimistic about the future um, it's not going to happen overnight, but I think we're well on our way, uh, well on our way there. So, the, you know, the, the student debt, and that's a that's a problem with with all species, with small animal, large animal. You know, it's it's uh, veterinary school is expensive, and so scholarship money is is great. Um, and, and anybody that can can do that, that's a that's a great thing to help the next generation. And we've got a number of programs through our foundation for that. The other thing is the mentorship that you mentioned. We we um, have supported a program called Decade One, where young veterinarians that are in their first decade of practice can can be put into peer groups with some mentoring. And um, that's been a really successful thing. We found that those veterinarians that have been in those peer groups have a much greater chance of sticking than those that don't. And so the mentorship piece to this is huge. 
Oh, that's great, David. I mean, even as an association executive, you know, you and I know that we've had to become a little more flexible and fluid about work place culture, especially going through the pandemic kind of thing. And I'm also thinking about the fact that mentorship and good onboarding and ongoing support uh, is crucial in any successful organization. Mm -hmm. But I can so see that for veterinarians, especially if they're in a small practice and they don't have a colleague to turn to when they've had a really bad day. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, I'm in several peer groups, Julie, and I know you. I'm in one or two with you. And so I, I know how valuable it is at, at any age or stage of your career to to have that kind of support. And so especially if you're if you're early on in practice and just starting out. And so I think it's it's just invaluable. Okay, David, we're gonna wrap up our interview with you, but leave our audience with one takeaway you'd really like them to know about this. I guess the one takeaway I would leave you with is that we're on this. We're aware of the problem. We we know that it has a, a the, the big picture is that this is a can have a huge impact on the welfare of the horse. And so it's it's our number one priority of our association. And we've devoted a lot of resources to it. And so um, I think, like I said earlier, that I'm very optimistic about the future for this profession. Thanks, David. Okay, so I'm going to close David's segment by by encouraging our listeners to like hashtag love your veterinarian. Show them some appreciation. They come out to look at your horse, you know, all from a plate of homemade cookies. Do something nice for them. Show them how much you care and how much you appreciate what they do for you. So, David, thank you so much. And thanks, thanks David. All of the members of AAEP for what they do for us every day and for our horses. Definitely. Thank you all for having me. I appreciate it. Here's some great reasons why your nonprofit should become a member of the United Horse Coalition. Through industry collaboration, the United Horse Coalition promotes education and options for at-risk and transitioning horses. Incentives for joining include access to a home for every horse training portal and other educational materials and programs, assistance with promotion, networking with industry professionals, Free listings on equine.com, Purina feed coupons. Join as a nonprofit or as a support organization. Become a member of the United Horse Coalition today. Find out more at unitedhorsecoalition.org/slash become a member. So our second uh, group of speakers today are from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and I'm so pleased to have Dr. Kathy Bjork. Hope I got it right. Yay. Uh, and Bob Smith, they serve as the national program leaders for the USDA's National Institute for Food and Agriculture, or NIFA, N-I-F-A. Um, Kathy possesses a DVM and a PhD in ophthalmology. Uh, prior to coming to this organization um, about three years ago, she was employed by USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, we know it as APHIS. Um, as a veterinary epidemiologist uh, with the Center for Epidemiology and Animal Health in Colorado, where she lives. Uh, prior to her service with the government, she served in a mixed animal practice. And Dr. Smith has been employed with NIFA for over 20 years and now works from central Pennsylvania. Beautiful country up there, Bob. Um And he possesses a DVM and a PhD in animal nutrition. And in addition, he is a diplomat with the American Colleges of Animal and Veterinary Nutrition. He has served as a mixed animal practitioner in New Jersey and Maryland, a professor of food, animal, medicine, and surgery at the University of Illinois, and as an attending veterinarian 
for all livestock and wildlife at Pennsylvania State University. Uh, Both of them oversee several animal health programs with NIFA uh, to include veterinary medicine loan repayment and veterinary services grant program. So we're delighted to have them with us. Thank you for joining us, Bob and Dr. Bjork. Thank you so much. Thank you, Megan. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. So I guess the first question we should talk about is, can you guys please explain the difference between the Veterinary Medicine Loan Repayment Program and the Veterinary Services Grant Program? Those both sound very uh, beneficial for for students, but a little confusing for the differences. Well, let me tell you, uh, I'll take this a stab at this, uh, Megan, uh, and let let me just uh, tell you a little bit about each of the programs and some of the differences between these two programs. The the Veterinary Medicine Loan Repayment Program, also known as the VMLRP, was established by Congress 20 years ago and implemented about 2010 to repay qualified educational loans for eligible veterinarians in exchange for veterinary services in rural or suburban shortage areas designated by the state animal health officials, also known as SAHOs or state veterinarians within the United States and U.S. insular areas such as Puerto Rico, Guam, the Marshall Islands, etc. The level of funding to an individual is $25,000 per year for a three-year commitment. Plus, we also include funds to cover the taxes that the government would love to have from you, and that covers uh, taxes to be paid to the federal government, the state, or local, uh, local organizations for the taxes. The Veterinary Services Grant Program, also known as the VSGP, was established in 2014 by Congress with the first review panel in 2016. The goals of this program are to fund accredited schools and recognized allied and professional organizations in education, extension, and training for food and large animal medicine, and for rural practice enhancement of veterinary clinics that provide services in designated veterinary shortage areas nominated by the SAHOs. The VSGP complements the VMLRP. With regard to the VSGP, the EET part of it grant with a maximum level of funding of $250,000 enables veterinarians, vet students, veterinary technicians, and veterinary technician students to gain specialized skills through formal coursework, clinical training, and practice enhancement to mitigate veterinary service shortages. The RTE, Rural Practice Enhancement Grants, with a maximum level of funding of $125,000 for a three-year period, bolster the capacity of private clinics that provide food and large animal veterinary services in designated shortage areas by the veterinary, by the SAHO. Both programs, again, as I said before, are funded for three years. So there are some differences between these two programs, and I'll outline some of these. The applicants for the VMLRP are individuals who are either soon to graduate or participating veterinarians, whereas the applicants for the VSGP are either large institutions or organizations or practices. Payments are made quarterly to the VMLRP program. Second point, payments for the VMLRP go directly to the lending institutions with the funds to be 
pay taxes go into the awardees. Payments for the VSGP go to the awardee at the beginning of the award period. The third point, VMLRP awardees can be renewed or awards can be renewed at the end of the third year after a competitive peer review process. VSGP awards for an EET grant cannot be renewed and grants to an RPE award, again, the Rural Practice Enhancement, can only be renewed after an eight-year period and only if their service area is renominated by the SAHO. And finally, with VMLRP, 100% of the service hours provided by the service agreement must be devoted to food and large animal species. With the VSTP grant, only 70% of the services or obligation must be devoted to food and large animal medicine. The rest of the time could be devoted to any other species to include companion animals. Thanks, Bob. That's a lot of acronyms. So let me just make sure I'm clear. You talked about the SOHO. That's the SAO, which I think means state animal official or office. State state animal health official, also known as the state veterinarian. Right. Okay. So they're the ones that are getting to decide which communities are in need and become eligible for these opportunities. Am I getting that right? You you got it. You got it. They're they're actually going through that process right now Mm -hmm. as we're talking. Got it. Okay. Can a community contact one of them and say, we need somebody? <laughs> Absolutely. Matter of fact, uh, each, each state actually, uh, SAHO will go out they, either by themselves or they have a team within that state and they'll work with producer groups or veterinary groups or they'll work with state associations of veterinary medicine or they'll work with a vet school if that state has a vet school and they try to get out there to find out where are these shortage areas. I'm guessing they have I'm going to I'm going off script a little bit. Sorry, Bob. I'm guessing they have some metrics like they're looking at how many large animals are in a particular community and comparing that to the available resources or how far those available veterinarians might be from them and thinking about what the density or the population looks like so they can figure out where the needs are. Absolutely. They're doing taking a look at the um, they can use NAS data, which is federal data, the National uh, Agricultural statistical services, or they can use other mechanisms within the state. Usually the state has a much more accurate, or the community would have a much more accurate of what the vet, what the number of animals are, you know, especially during COVID-19, you know, the numbers really changed drastically. And yeah. so maybe somebody went into an area thinking that they had all these herds of cattle or, or flocks of sheep or whatever, and then they find out that, whoa, people are getting out of the business or whatever, so the numbers change. So they, they try to go ahead and, and identify the numbers. And and uh, actually, we just had a meeting with the Sahos uh, yesterday, and we just discussed these exact same, you know, concerns. How, how do you go ahead and make a nomination? What do you use? What's the criteria for your selection? So I know they're actively seeking to make the nominations right now for 2024. And there'll probably be a total of about 240 nominations. Hey, so you triggered a thought, Bob. Um, You know, we're doing our National Economic Impact Study uh, this year, 
at the American Horse Council. And uh, our numbers say in 2017, there were 7.2 million horses in the U.S., whereas NAS, the National Agricultural Statistics Service, says there's 2.8 million horses. And that's because we define the populations differently. But if the SOHOs need data, I'm going to have it. And it might give them a bigger picture of the total horse population in a community than just those that are on working farms that are meeting the criteria for the NAS ag census that they do. So just just a passing thought to to put in your yeah, it, your toolkit. It would be nice. It would be nice, Julie, if you could share that information with the state animal health officials. Yep, happy to do that. Happy to do that. Okay, sorry, Megan, I digress. Oh. Get back on track for me. <laughs> No, you're good. And I, I think it's great to be to let people know that this program that these programs exist. Um, and I I did want to ask on one lo- one more follow-up in talking about how people can reach out to to their state um health um officials for, you know, to let them know, hey, we need some help. Do they just go onto their state health um website and find a contact there or how can they let people know that let their um, state health officials know that say we need some help or, you know, to just contact them. Well, they, you know, we, we keep, we keep a record of each, uh, each of the sahos for each state. Okay. Mm-hmm. And actually it's interesting. The turnover rates pretty, pretty high. I mean, you know, right now that for example, Kentucky uh, had a saho and then they stepped away and now they just got a new one. And so this turnover of state animal health officials is uh, is something just to be uh, aware of. But they should be able to reach out to the state agriculture, the Department okay. of Agriculture within the state. They should be able to identify who the SAHO is. If they can't do that, they can certainly go to what we post. It's called a VMLRP map that shows the shortage areas. And you can click on the state, and that will really bring out those nominations that the SAHOs have prepared. And in that nomination form, they have the name, they have the email, they have the actually email address, telephone number of the individuals you can contact. So I get a lot of calls from people that say, hey, you know, I really need, I want to take advantage of these grants, like for the VSGP, the clinics. Uh, How do I know if they've nominated that area? I said, we'll give the SAHO a call. Because right now, (laughs) Right now, they're making those determinations. And if you want to have your area nominated or considered, then you need to contact your state animal health official. When you Mm -hmm. do that, you need to actually be able to tell them or provide them in your reasons why you think it's a critical shortage area. The number of animals, the number of veterinarians, are veterinarians retiring? Or, you know, what's going on? Why do you think it's a critical shortage area? Got it. Got it. So talk to me a minute about what um, is the commitment that people are making? Let's say you're an individual and you get this veterinary medicine loan repayment money. What are they required to do um, in exchange for getting this assistance? Well, that's a great question, Julie. So what they're supposed to do, number one, is they need to fulfill the requirements needed or outlined in the nomination form that the state animal health officials are creating right now. Because within that form, they are actually outlining what the services are, what the species are that they want covered, what the services are within that species that they want covered. For example, if you want someone to work a sale barn, they're going to state that, okay? If they're going to want someone to be able to devote some of their time to a certain species, 
they're going to be very explicit about that, okay? And so that's important. They need to be understand that they need to serve an entire area that the SAHO nominates. It's typically more than one county. It could be could be six or seven counties, depending on what state you're looking at. Okay, you need to maintain um, and and submit as needed a log of service provided by the given area. So we want to know for VMLRP uh, ward ease. Hey, what periodically we're going to be asking you. Did you meet your service agreement? Did you meet the species that you need to work on? Did you meet the hour requirements that you have to serve? Did you serve in the proper uh, counties that you're required to work in? Okay. And then finally, uh, I, I think we hope and we expect, and the panel certainly looks at this, is we want these these applicants, these people to become members of the community. They wanted to serve, support the state, the, the federal regulatory aspects, requirements of that state. And so therefore we have to make sure they maintain their license and they make maintain their accreditation. So they can actually do some of the regulatory work that APHIS requires and the state requires. Okay. So those four points are really what kind of commitment we're looking for. And I, I just want to emphasize that I think it's important that we understand that we want them to be able to think about providing services more than just for horses, okay? Because many SAHOs don't nominate, just work on horses. Again, they can call the SAHO up, they can pitch the need for a horse equine vet, but they're also probably need to work on other species. Mm -hmm. That makes, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. And for our listeners purposes, you know, what Bob has described is not a really uh, onerous process to fulfill the requirements or the commitments. Um, I think in our world at the American Horse Council, we often apply for grant funding to help us with programs we want to do. And they all have those regular, you know, documentation and reporting requirements to get that kind of funding. So this is very much on par, Bob, with what we sort of see in any of the nonprofit sector or, or this kind of space. So I don't, it doesn't sound to me overwhelming, you know, for somebody to, to if they meet the criteria and they get this opportunity, they can probably do what's got to be done to to reflect, you know, the work that they've been doing. Right. Well, great. Well, this just, I mean, it's it sounds it sounds great. And you had answered my next question, Bob, about how equine veterinarian care was considered in the program and that, yes, a lot of times you need to not just focus on equine, but you may have to be bovine, you may have to look at swine, especially depending on the different parts of the country that you're that you're in. Yeah, well, Megan, I want to emphasize that uh, equine are considered an important agricultural species by USDA and NIFA, okay? And oftentimes people lose that and they don't realize that. And I've talked to Sahos and they say, you know, you should go ahead and nominate right down as a species equine because uh, the practitioner's they can't just drive by a, you know, a sick horse or one that needs some services. They need to get credit, and and, and you know we all take a, a an oath, a veterinary oath, mm -hmm. and that we need to really work on any species that we come by. But we're our focus is on food animal, large animal. So I've always emphasized that even though we don't eat horses, they're not considered a food animal. They're considered a very valuable agricultural animal. Okay, so. Oftentimes, the Sahos will look at, oh, I've got a big beef industry out here, okay? 
and the beef industry gets slow at certain times of the year. Mm -hmm. Okay. And those, those veterinarians who do beef love to work on the horses, especially the cowboys, you know, and they work horses all the time. So the service horses are really what we, we prefer that the applicants focus on, you know, whether you're in the middle of Pennsylvania and dealing with the Amish community and working with draft horses or you're out west in the beef country and working with some of the horses that the cowboys are using, you know, the fact is they find that to be extremely of interest. Um, and so when applicants go there and they apply, we really want to emphasize the work and the service to support the service horses, okay? I also want to let you know that the Sahos are now recommending more uh they're they're listing equine there as okay. far as a species that really needs to have attention and they need to work on um vmlrp awardees receive credit for services provided to equine as a part of their overall uh service to producers and the communities in the area they serve and awardees can ex can you know will be with expertise and equine are welcome to apply but I, they must be willing and able to serve another species, uh, like we just talked about. You know, maybe mm -hmm. small ruminants they feel a little bit more comfortable with. You know, maybe they're not working with beef or dairy, but there are other species. They're backyard poultry. There's honeybees. There's uh, aquaculture that they might really want to focus on. So pay attention to that. And I'd recommend that if anybody with a focus on equine in school, uh, they're there right now. They want to start thinking about, hey, how can I expand my my expertise to learn all they can while they're there about the treatment of other animals, okay, mm -hmm. food animals. You know, I recall back when I went to school, and I that's like over four decades ago, but the fact is, uh, you know, I, I concentrated on food animal. I couldn't get into uh, my the rotation I wanted, and so I had a double rotation of equine. And I'm, my eyes are rolling. I'm saying, what am I doing here? <laughs> the fact is, when I got out into practice in New Jersey, southern New Jersey, where my emphasis was to be on dairy and, and swine and, and, and some beef cattle, a lot of my calls, all my emergency calls were on equine. And so I saw lots and lots of horses in New Jersey at that time and, and had to treat lots of colic and things of that nature. But I'm just saying, emphasize the need to broaden their perspectives mm -hmm. as they're going through school so they become much more competitive in this grant process because it is a competitive grant process and by a peer review group. Mm -hmm. So talk to me a minute about what the USDA is doing to encourage uh, up-and-coming veterinarians and uh, how are we retaining young veterinarians in in practice. You know, I, like I said, I do a lot of public speaking at universities, happy to promote the program when I go out and talk to those equine science majors. Uh, but we have the Equine Science Society and the North American Affiliated uh, Equine Academics and a number of different groups out there that um, are uh, involved with these young adults that are seeking to move into veterinary practice. But what's USDA doing to try to foster all of that? I'm going to turn that over to Dr. Pure, okay? Sure. Thanks, Bob. And thanks, Julie. Um, in general, um, our programs 
are really um, targeted towards workforce development in food animal veterinary medicine. And so we have programs like um, Bob just mentioned, the VSGP has an EET program and RPE program, that's the Veterinary Services Grant Program, Education, Extension and Training, and Rural Practice Enhancement. And both of those programs have an objective of getting out into the community and meeting with students in 11th and 12th grade. Because I think just as David mentioned earlier, there's a pipeline here. There's a, you know, experience that you can gain and as a, a young person, maybe even in high school, um, college, that really serves you well when you get into veterinary medicine. And so we're really working to get um, get into that pipeline, get in early with these students. And then we also have some uh, initiatives with, well, we have one in particular with a, a nonprofit called Lifestock, and they are um, going into the veterinary schools and um, we're, they're selected champions at uh, a number of veterinary schools to uh, work with students to answer questions about how to apply to our programs. Even though the the programs are might might look simple from the outside, sometimes when people haven't applied to a federal program in the past, they can be pretty daunting. And um, it's really good to have a mentor or somebody to help you work through that. So we're working with this group called Lifestock. Um, and uh, the, the folks that are working on that are faculty at the vet schools, and they're really proponents for our programs. So I think that's a a, a great thing. Can um, somebody um, can somebody Google and find out about livestock? Can they find them on a website somewhere? And I was just going to mention that um, they will be incorporated into our requests for applications that are coming out okay. in the next few months. We have a, a regular cycle of applications and uh, and processing and awards. And as Bob has said a couple times. Right now, we are in the period of our application cycle where the um, state animal health officials are developing those nominated areas. And once they develop their their areas that they would like to see veterinarians in, we'll post that sometime in January. Soon after that, we'll be posting the request for applications from the veterinarians. And that's the really the most important document that anybody who's interested in the program should refer to. It's the RFA. And literally, if you put in um, into a search site, just put in VMLRP RFA, just these simple acronyms, you'll be directed to the request for applications. We expect those requests to be um, the deadlines to be sometime in mid-April. And then I just want to mention, as Bob said, when he mentioned the word panel, this is a really important part of our process. And that is in the late spring, we seat a panel of experts. They're from um, private practice, academia, industry. These are folks who will take those applications and they'll take those shortage nominations and they're going to find the best candidates to serve those areas, the most meritorious folks to award uh, loan repayment to. So um, that's a really important time coming up where we're just about to start our cycle for fiscal year 24. So I just encourage all of your listeners who are interested to go to our website and then you will see the livestock group reference there. 
I don't believe they have launched their website yet for our program, but that is in the works and should be in the next, it could be two, two or three months as we, as we work through our new agreement with them. Great. Yeah, can, of course. Sorry, go ahead, Bob. I just wanted to emphasize, uh, so there's no fee associated with that, which is really mm-hmm. important to let everybody know yeah, uh, yeah. that this is a company that we've uh, subcontracted with and hope to work with in the next few years. And we're working with them right now. So everything's sort of getting geared up. But the other thing, the great thing is they're going to be attending the AAEP uh, meeting. They're going to have a booth there. And uh, I would encourage, uh, maybe Dr. Foley can encourage the membership to try to go there, people that are interested uh, to go to their booth and pick up information about the programs that we just got done t- talking to you about. But also, they can then tell tell the applicants or potential applicants what, what this company can do for them, because they're really going to be working with them through these schools are going to be actually attracting them because the students are at the schools, most of them, and therefore they can sort of mentor them a little bit and work with them at what we call champions at these schools to be able to actually uh, get them uh, better to understand the programs that they're applying to. And they're going to be working with a total of about 33. There are 33 uh, U.S. accredited veterinary schools right now. And their goal is to work with all 33. Another three or four years, we may have another, you know, four or five. But right now, they're 33 accredited. And we'll definitely include links to USDA's website and everything in our show notes. So if anybody is interested, we'll we'll help them out a little bit with that with that direction for sure. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Any anytime we have any, any anybody has any questions, they can reach right out to us, and we'd be more than happy to work with them. Well, thanks again for joining us, and by all means, check out the show notes so you know how to find Bob and Kathy and get more information about this, and check them out at the AAEP conference, which I think David is in the er, late November, early December. Late no, like November twenty. 20- 7th or 8th through the December the 3rd in San yeah. Diego. And, and yeah. So uh, check that out when you're out there, folks, and learn more about all this. Uh, Megan, anything else you want to do before we start our wrap up? No, just thank you guys very much for joining us and for taking time out of your schedule to help us uh, help our horse owners and help our veterinarians that take care of them. You're welcome. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. We are very appreciative of our guests. And as always, we appreciate our veterinarians and the veterinary technicians that have devoted their lives to caring for horses across the country. We hope this episode shines a light on the dilemma so many horse owners are facing right now while offering support and assistance for both the horse owners and the veterinarians. If you have any questions or you want to know more about the programs discussed here, please see the show notes with this episode. We'd like to invite you to join the American Horse Council, and you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter, uh, which has the latest in all of the legislative uh, and regulatory happenings, both federal and state, um, as well as follow information uh, for horse owners like you who need to know all the things that are going on that might affect our community. Follow the American Horse Council on social media and look into becoming a member to support your beloved industry locally and nationally. 
You can subscribe to Horses in the Morning on any podcast player and find all the shows on the Horse Radio Network at horseradionetwork.com. And as we like to say, we are hashtag here for horses. <laughs>